All right, let's open up to the book of Ezra. We're going to be in chapter 2 and 3 tonight. That is, that is the plan. 83 verses. So I hope you all brought an overnight bag. Maybe a while. No, it won't be that long. <clears throat> the book of Ezra, we're going to start in chapter 2. And Pastor George can make fun of me later with these names. It's okay. Why later? Why not now? <laughs> so, seen in chapter 1 that the Jews were going to get the green light from Cyrus to go back to Judah, go back into Jerusalem, and to start rebuilding the temple that they had longed to build for so many years, 70 years to be exact. So they got the permission from Cyrus, they got the, the, the means to go and build it now, and so we're going to see them starting to head back into, Ju into Judah and back into Jerusalem, and we're going to see the list of those who went before them here in chapter 2. So in chapter 2, two verse 1, we're going to start, it says, now, there, now these are the people of the province who came back from the captivity of those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his own city. So we're going to now, now that they got the permission, they're going to start making their way back. In verse 2 it says, Those who came with Zerubbabel were Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rahum, and Benaiah, the number of the men of the people of Israel. So in these first two verses, we're going to see here that it begins the list of the families and the individuals who made their return back to Jerusalem now that it was a province of the Persian Empire. So they're letting them return to go build their temple, but they're still in the province of the Persian Empire who had took over from Babylon. You notice some names here. We see Nehemiah and we see Mordecai. These are not the same two of Nehemiah and uh, Mordecai and Esther. This is not the same two guys, but just uh, two others that had the same name. Often the, the, they would use the same names. Zerubbabel here. We see that he was appointed as the governor of the province of Judah. So he's the main guy that would be in charge of this move back and the build of the temple. He was also a descendant of the last reigning Judean king. So that would put him in the line of David. So even after 70 years, God was still keeping that promise. Not necessarily him sitting on the, on the throne, but he was going to be governing over that area and, and in charge of the rebuilding of the temple there in Jerusalem. So even during the 70-year uh, exile, they seem to still keep some track of who was to be next in line and whose lineage belonged to what, as we see as we continue reading on here. We also see Jeshua, who is, I guess you could say, the next guy in charge. He was the high priest that was going to be over the uh, temple area. Now we know in Greek, Jeshua means Jesus. So we see another name that was used uh, repeatedly here, but he was also a fellow leader with Jerubbabel. So verses 3 through 35, 
we see a list of names. We're not going to read through all of them, but we're going to make a mention of some of these names and some of the meaning of these names as we go through. So here is the list of the names of the heads of the families uh, with the numbers of the men of those families. It means that the total number of people uh, that would be, it would be more than what we're seeing here. So we're seeing the heads of the family. That's like if my name was in there, we'll see Brandon, and he had three that came with him. So you can add up and do the math on how many people would actually come. But these names definitely reflected a variety of influences that the Jewish people had as they're coming back into Israel. And many of these names are, are connected to biblical ideas uh, in their meaning of what their names were. And often, when they were in captivity, the Babylonians or the Persians would often change the names of those who were captive in their areas. So that was also often something that was taking place there. But let's look at a couple of names and see what their meanings are. In verse 3, we see uh, Parash. His meaning is flee. So I don't know exactly why they called him flee, but his name is flee. In verse 4, we see Sephatiah, which means Yahweh has judged. We see in verse 5, Era means wild ox. In verse 9, we see Zakiah. Zakiah means either pure or it is a short, shortened form of Zechariah. We see Benai in verse 10 uh, is a shortened form of Benaiah, and it also means Yahweh has built. We see in verse 11, we see Dabai means pupil of the eye. We see as Gad, which means Gad is strong. We see in verse 13, we see Adonai Kim, which means my Lord has risen. Verse 15, it says Adin, which means voluptuous. Don't know. In verse 16, we say Etor, which means lefty. So he must have been a good guy. He's, he probably was left-handed, so... I think most left-handed people are pretty good. You agree, George? Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, Bezii is a shortened form of Bezalil, and it means in the shadow of God. That's a good place to be, in the shadow of God. In verse 18, we see Jorah, which means autumn rain. 19, we see Hashem, means broad nose. So, a physical feature, kind of like Roy. Broad nose. Then we see in verse 20, it says, Gibber, which means strong man. Maybe like Roy, too. I don't know. But here's some of the, some of the names of some of the people that were coming back into Jerusalem. Uh, so we see the whole list from verses 3 all the way to verses 35. But as we get into verse 36, as we get into verse 36, we see here they're going to start naming the priests and the Levites, and so forth. In verse 36, it says, The priests, the sons of Jediah, of the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons, uh, in verse 37, it says, The sons of Emmer, 1,052. The sons of Pashur, 1,247. In verse 39, the sons of Haram. 1,017. 
So we see here in verses 36 through 39, they talk about the priesthood. Now these are the families represented here, only four of the 24 divisions of the priesthood that David has set up. So we see that some of the priests actually were going to stay behind in Babylon. Then it goes on in verses 40. It talks about the Levites. It says, the Levites, the sons of Jeshua and Kedemil, of the sons of Hodaviah, was 74. So the total number of Levites were actually less than the number of priests that returned. So they're not going back with the full capacity at this point in time. Over time, they'll build up that capacity to be able to uh, minister within the temple and minister to the nation. But the total number of Levites are actually less than the number of priests that return. This means that remarkably small percentage of the Levites return to Babylon. Now we know some of these Levites throughout uh, the history of Judah, especially probably towards the end, had probably fallen away from the faith. They probably were ministering on the high places and in the groves and all that of a lot of the idolatry that had formed there. Because you remember the Levites would come in and serve, but they would also be out in their communities as ministers to those communities and outlying cities uh, from Jerusalem. So they may have gotten involved in the idolatry and, and such and may not be making the return trip to Jerusalem here. And maybe they didn't want to go back to that area where they served those idols. You know, that's all speculation for right now. So in verse forty. Uh, then it goes on to, uh, where am I at, verse 40? So verse 41, we talk about the singers. We have the sons of Asaph. There was 128. So those are the ones who would worship and bring praise to God. In verse 42, it says the sons of the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Ater, the sons of Talmon, the sons of Echab, and the sons of Hatitah, and the sons of Shabai. 139 in all. So we see the rest of those who would serve in the temple and, and do the, uh, the will of God within the temple, ministering to the people. Now, verse 43, it says, The Nithinim, the sons of Ziah, the sons of Hashphua, the sons of Tabaoth. We're going to get it. Tabaoth. Now, the Nithinim, if you turn over to, I'll turn there, to Joshua 9, starting in verse 3, we're going to read about them. These are the people who lied their way to be safe from Joshua when he came through. So it starts in verse 3, it says, But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors, and they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, and old garments on themselves, and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. So they're giving the appearance of themselves being ambassadors coming from a foreign land, even though they're right there in the land of Canaan, where Joshua was going to take over and in verse 6, it says, And they went to, Joshua, they went to Joshua to the camp of Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. So we know Joshua was to exterminate those in the land to get them out. Uh, so they're, they're trying to fool him into making a covenant with him, thinking they are outside of the land. 
It says, Then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you dwell among us, so how can we make a covenant with you? So, so they were trying to catch on, hey, you probably dwell here among us. We sh- and we cannot make a covenant with those who are dwelling among us. In verse 8, they said, But they said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? So they said to him, From a, far, uh, from a very far country, your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard of his, name, his fame in all that he did in Egypt. Blasphemy, because that is not where they're coming from. They are not coming from a faraway country. And you notice they don't even name the country. Still pulling the wool over his eyes. In verse 10 it says, And all that he did to the kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, to uh, Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtoreth. Therefore, our elders and all the inhabitants of the country spoke to us, saying, Take provisions with you for the journey, and go to meet them, and say to them, We are your servants. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. This bread of ours we took hot for our provision from our houses. On the day we departed to come to you, but now look, it is dry and moldy. And these wineskins which we filled were new, and see, they are torn. And these, our garments and our sandals, have become old because of the very long journey. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. Number one mistake. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the rulers of the congregation swore to them. So, the Nathanim. These are those people. They served in the temple. Uh, They would bring water and move wood around for the temple, and they would serve the Levites. And uh, in verses 43 through 58, that's who we see here, the descendants of these people. Also in verse 55, it says that the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Shotai and the sons of Sophareth, the sons of Perida. So we also see descendants of, of servants that were belonging to Solomon, that they've been there for quite a while in the nation of Israel, and they even went into captivity with them and now are going to return back to Jerusalem. In verse 59 through 63, we're going to look at the, this listing. These are among those who were registered, but they weren't in that genealogy of any of these people in Israel. So verse 59, it says, and these were the ones who came up from Tel Melah, uh, Tel Hersha, Cherub, Adan, and Emmer. But they could not identify their father's house or their genealogy, whether they were of Israel. So somewhere along the line, when they went into captivity, they lost their line, their genealogy, and where they had come from. In verse 60, it says, the sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, and the sons of Nekedah, 652. And of the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Kaz, and the sons of Berzeliah, who took a wife of the daughters of Berzeliah, the Gildite, and was called by their name. These sought their listings among those who were registered by genealogy, but they were not found. 
Therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. So we see these men here not knowing their genealogy, not, uh, not caught in with Israel to go back, and they're considered defiled. But then it goes on in verse 63, and it says, The governor said to them that they should not eat of the most holy thing till a priest could consult with the Urim and the Thummim. So they were going to seek God on whether they were in the genealogy or not or if they were in the priesthood and where they would line up. And I think that's a good thing for them to do. We've seen Joshua, we just read that they did not seek the Lord on these people who were coming in lying to him. But now we see them going in the right direction by seeking the Lord to fit them into the genealogy of Israel and where they were actually placed. We continue on in verse 64. It says, the whole assembly together was 42,360. Besides their male and female servants, of whom there was 7,337, and they had 200 men and women singers. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. They are not leaving anything uncounted. We're counting the horses, we're counting the donkeys, we're counting everything here. So you see the number of people here. Number of the congregation, including the singers, was more and more than what actually went into captivity as they're going back. And that means that just like when they were in Egypt, they prospered while they were in captivity. Even though they had the affliction that was on them of being in captivity, they prospered in their way and their nation grew. And I think often whenever we're having some kind of affliction, that we grow in our faith and we grow closer to the Lord. And I think sometimes the affliction is put there so that we grow closer to the Lord. And we see them while they were in captivity that they're coming back now to serve the Lord. They're not coming back to serve idols. They're not coming back to do anything else but rebuild the temple and to start serving the Lord. In verse 68, it says, Some of the heads of the father's houses, when they came to the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to erect it in its place. According to their ability, they gave to the treasurer for work 61,000 gold drachmas, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments. So the priests and the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Nethanim dwelt in their cities, and all Israel in their cities. So we see here the people giving freely towards the temple. And we've said it before in other sermons where we need to be a cheerful giver and want to give to the house of God. Not for the simple fact of putting money in the bank, but putting money to where it can be used to go out and witness to people and to share the gospel and to take care of the things of the house of God. So we see them giving generously and giving according to their ability. They didn't step out of their ability. They gave what they could, and they gave it to the house of God. And we see in verse 70 that they dwelt in their cities. So they've returned now to Judah and to Jerusalem, and they're starting to inhabit the land after generations of exile, there were again substantial presence of Jewish people within the promised land, the promised land that was given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Another wonderful fulfillment of God, another promise of taking them back out of captivity, back to the promised land. So now we're going to get into chapter 3 of Ezra. So we've seen the genealogy now in chapter 2, and as we get into chapter 3, we're going to see more of the theology of uh, the Jews as they get back into building the temple. In verse 1 it says, And when the seventh month had come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. So in other words, they were united as one. And there's power in being united as one as the body of Christ. And we see here that the people were in proper position for power, just like in Acts 2. It is when the disciples were in one accord that the Holy Spirit came and was poured out on them. That was a beautiful time. And in the light of this, I suggest that part of the reason that we may not see that too often or we may not have revival here in our country today is because there is no unity, there is no union amongst the believers in Christ. And if it is, it's in very small pockets. There's a lot of, there's a lot of division, a lot of fighting, a lot of fault finding among the people of God, and that should not be so. We should be as one accord underneath Christ in his church. In verse 2 it says, Then Joshua, the son of Josadak, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shelatel, and his brethren, arose and built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. In verse 3 it says, Though fear had come upon them because of the people, of those countries, they set the altar on its basis, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, to the Lord, both the morning and evening burnt offerings. They had their priorities straight. They're going back into the land, and the first thing they build is the altar, to start the sacrifices, to start the worship. And many will say, "Well, that doesn't seem practical. You're going into a land that has not been inhabited." For 70 years, you're going into a land that there are neighboring cities or countries that are idolatrous and may want to come in and destroy you as you move back into your rightful land. And the first thing you build is an altar? How about building a building? How about building the temple first? How about fortifying the city? How about doing those things first? And it would seem like, yeah, that seems like common sense. That's what you do. You fortify, you, you take over that territory, you make sure that it's secure before you start doing something else. But we know in Matthew 6, it says, seek first the kingdom of God. And that's what the people, as they returned back into Jerusalem, back into Judah, the first thing they wanted to do was seek God. And there's no more security than you need in seeking God. So their priorities were definitely straight, and they continue to seek God here. It says that they sought, did the burnt offerings in the morning, and they did it in the evening. And that reflects on us waking up with the Lord on our mind, reading our word, praying, going to sleep with the Lord on our mind as we close in prayer and praise at night. We can follow that example that they have here. And it says, though fear had come upon them because the people of those countries I think about what's going on around us right now, the demonic things that are going on around us right now. 
because that's exactly what it is. It's demonic. And the enemy is out there wanting to attack us as believers, wanting to bring us down, want us to give up our faith in God. But instead of trying to build up our own walls and build up our own buildings and our own security, we need to do what the Jews did when they moved back in. We need to take it to the altar. We need to take it to praise to God. We need to take it to him in, war in warfare because that's exactly what we're in. We're not, we're not at a trip at Disneyland as a believers. We're in a, we're in a spiritual battle night and day that doesn't stop. And we can look around us in, here in Lafayette, in, in Louisiana, in the United States of America, and we can see chances for fear to fall upon us on our left and our right. And they've seen the same thing with the neighboring countries that were going to come in, that there could be fear that could come upon them, that they can attack us at any moment. But we can't have that spirit of fear. We need to have the spirit that God has given us and look beyond that fear and look to Jesus. And that's what we need to do as they sat here and built the altar to worship God. They definitely had their priorities straight. Verse 4, they said, They also kept the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written and offered, the daily burnt offerings in the number required by ordinance for each day. Afterwards, they offered, after that, they offered the regular burnt offering and those for new moons and for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated and those of everyone who willingly offered a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. The foundation was not laid, but that altar of sacrifice was already laid. In verse 7, it said, They also gave money to the masons and the carpenters and the food, uh, drink, and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. So we see here that they're going to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a week-long celebration reminding them of God delivering them out of Egypt. And how fitting is that as God is delivering them now out of the hands of the Persians as they go back. Kind of another exodus back to the promised land. Then we see here that the men of Tyre and Sidon floated trees down from Joppa, Sounds familiar? When Solomon built the temple, he had the, the trees and everything floated back down to be able to build uh, the temple there. So we see that we have now Jews and Gentiles both working on the temple as we see these logs coming down from Tyre and Sidon. And we have Jews and Gentiles within the church working together to spread the gospel. We also want to look at this. He talks about Joppa. It's interesting that in Joppa, that's where Jonah refused to preach to the Gentiles going to Nineveh. So Joppa is kind of a popular place within Scripture here. It's also where Peter was when he was called to minister to the Gentiles as well. So Joppa does definitely play a significant part in the going out of God's Word. In verse 8, it says, Now in the second month of the second year, of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem. Zerubbabel, the son of Shotel, Jeshua, the son of Josadak, 
and the rest of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all those who had come out of the captivity of Jerusalem, began work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. So we see here that the Levites were ordained into ministry at 20 years old. We know that 30 years old was the original age, but David, one of his last uh, moves as king, brought it down to 20. So that's what they're going to go off of. And I find it amazing, too, that they're knowing how to do all these different things to worship God. They must have had uh, this information passed down from, from family to family to be able to go back and do what the Word of God said. Because remember, there was hardly any Word of God left in Israel until they found one in the, in the rubble of the temple. So for them to, to be able to know this stuff as they go back out of captivity, to me it's pretty amazing how God was able to keep that remnant and keep those laws intact for them to be able to go back and do this. So in verse 9 it says, Then Jeshua with his sons and brother, Catamel with his sons and the sons of Judah, arose as one to oversee those working on the house of God. The sons of Hinnadad with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and Levites, the sons of Asaph, with the cymbals to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's house, old men, who had seen the first temple wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy. Verse 13, it says, So that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. So we see here, as the foundations of the next temple is being built, there's a huge celebration. Celebrating the work that God is doing. And we see two different things happening as this foundation is being set. We see, number one, we see the younger men that is saying, all right, we're building the temple. We're doing something great for God. This is exciting. This is fun. This is amazing to be part of this. But then we see the older men sitting here that are weeping and crying, missing the old temple, saying that the temple that Solomon had was great and wonderful and it was laced with gold and it was laced with silver. But here is going to be built with stone. So we see two groups, one excited about the future and the other one continuing to look at the past. And you know what? We, we Sometimes we get stuck looking in the past at times. And I think it's good to look back and it's good to, to get a reminder of where we've been, but we need to move forward with God. We need to continue to move forward with the Spirit of God as it moves and does things day after day, month after month, year after year. And we need to continue to move on it. Haggai 2.9 said that the second temple was actually going to be greater than the first. And part of that reason was is because Jesus walked in that latter temple. 
And wherever Jesus is, we know that it is infinitely greater the glory that will be there. And as the temple is getting built here, we see the weeping for the old, but we also see the rejoicing for the future work that God is going to do for the nation of Israel. Amen? Father, we thank you for this word tonight. We thank you, Lord, that you are still working among your people, Father God. That we don't have to look always to the past, Father God, to see what you have done. And we do glorify you in that, Lord, but we also look with expectation of what you're going to do now and into the future, Father God, as we we walk with you and our faith is built up in you, Father God. We thank you for your word tonight. We ask that you would bless the people who are here, bless those who are not able to make it, Lord, and that we give us safe travels. In Jesus' name, amen.